Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, what's up, Geekscapists? Welcome to a brand new show. I'm Jonathan London, and I'm uh, sitting here doing my podcast again for you guys, streaming live over the internet. Uh, you can watch us on Facebook, on Twitch, on YouTube, and for those of you who love that Periscope, we're on Periscope as well. But I am broadcasting from the Dweeb Darling Studio, a.k.a. Heidi's Bedroom. I have not been here in a few days, um, actually. I've actually been back at my own place uh, over in Sherman Oaks, Packing up, packing my apartment, putting things in uh, in in storage, and kind of uh, thinking to myself, "Hey, we are in the long stretch of this thing, this pandemic that we're all sharing. Um, this is kind of normal to us now. Let's start putting together uh, our lives again. Uh, what can we safely do to progress? Maybe you guys are feeling this way. I know I've been feeling this way." where it's like, okay, we hunkered down for a bit. And I'm not saying reopen America. I'm not going to go down to Huntington Beach with the NRA fans and start uh, yelling to open up the Applebee's. I'm just saying that uh, we have an opportunity here uh, while the world seems paused to uh, progress, to, to, to make what we want, to uh, work on things. And I'm not saying you got to learn to play guitar or you got to finish the great American novel that you've had in your head for a long time. Um, if anything, I think what I'm... T- saying is uh, you can uh, find a way to calibrate yourself, um, get your, your your brain set uh, in this little pause that we're in, and more so than physically or, or anything else, just uh, know that this thing that, that, that you're feeling or this thing that we're existing in is a snapshot, and it is not your life. Uh, you have to, you have a chance now to think about what you want your life to be going forward from this little pause that we're all kind of stuck in and put it together. Um, one thing I was thinking of was like, hey, you're either making it or you're taking it. And I don't think we want to take it. We want to make it. Um, I said a little uh, earlier on the show that uh, a couple weeks ago that I uh, was putting together a movie with my producer, Gnome, and then the pandemic hit and that was all put on pause. Well, Gnome is here with me today on the show to uh, talk about how do we get back there? How do we start putting Hollywood um, or independent filmmaking back together? Like what are the steps that independent filmmakers are going to have to go through? What is the landscape going to look like in order to put our films back up? We're talking about the Marvel movies, or we're talking about an independent movie, like the one we were thinking about putting together that we still plan on putting together. It's just, now we got to think about this little wrinkle called coronavirus, at least until there's a vaccine or herd immunity or or any of the different variables that are keeping us from just doing what we want to do, which is, making it, not fucking taking it, because we're not going to take it. I'm not putting this earth for a limited amount of time just to take it. I'm going to make some stuff. We're going to get heard, all right? Like, think about it. Um, so I think I think it's been time to put that together. And as you guys can see, I, I got to stay creative. I'm making the streams. I'm working on some other things. You guys will find out about those hopefully in time. But I don't like sitting still. And it's caused me to 
deal with that. It's caused me to, to think about like what, like what am I doing, and uh, what's the best strategy for figuring things out. And uh, no one else uh, seems to be uh, just sitting pat in entertainment. We got the Zack Snyder cut finally being announced for HBO Max coming out next year. So you uh, guys on the internet who are yelling "release the Snyder cut," congrats, you won. Uh, am I looking forward to it? I don't know. Maybe I'll watch it. <laughs> I watched the first Justice League cut, and I thought it was, yeah, it's a Justice League movie. It was fine. Um, if I hear enough things about this one being interesting, I'll, I'll watch it. doesn't have to be good. just has to be interesting. I like interesting movies, and good or bad, that's kind of what I, I like to celebrate here on Geekscape. Uh, so anyway, let's throw up the comments, and then I'll bring Gnome onto the show to talk about what the hell we're going to be doing with our careers in the midst of all this. Um George Pepe is watching me in the Dweeb Darling studio and says, can we watch you shred on that sexy blue guitar? Well, that is not my electric guitar. That is Heidi's. I have my own electric guitar over at my place, uh, and maybe I'll bring it over soon. And you can watch how bad I am at guitar. <laughs> uh, Ricto over on YouTube says, hey, man, nice speech. Now, do you want to join me at my end of the world marauder group? or the wolf? He's calling it the Wolf Pack. Do I want to join the Wolf Pack with Ricto? And be part of like a Mad Max post-apocalyptic marauding group. Uh, yeah, fuck yeah, let's, let's sign me up. Let's do it. Um, what are the strategies? Uh, let's say uh, no loud guns because then the other marauders know that we're there. Uh, let's try to stay away from things that create fire because they might explode, or I don't know, light ourselves on fire. I think blades are bad, but distance-forming weapons like I don't know uh, bow staffs or. Um, Tridents are good in a, in a battle. I always wonder on The Walking Dead why they're running around with knives. It's The Walking Dead. They scratch you and they kill you. Like, don't use a fucking knife. Use something that'll create distance between you and the enemy. But we'll see what the state of the apocalypse is. And then we'll put our Marauder group together and we'll think about strategy. But unlike the people on Lost, we got to communicate these things. So if you see a fucking smoke monster, tell everybody the second that you saw a damn smoke monster. Or like a hatch in the jungle or anything. Okay? Like... We're not going to be taken by surprise like the people on Lost, okay? This is not this is not the villain of the week kind of thing. This is not holding on suspense. We're going to use strategy to survive this apocalypse. All right, Big Yanks uh, says, The pandemic just blessed us with the Justice League Snyder cut. <laughs> yeah, but we'll talk about what kind of precedent it sets when the internet screams and gets its way. Who knows? Um, Seth Spanis on Facebook already has a challenge over here for our, our Marauder group. Uh, Rick, though, he says, first, I'm going to find you. And I know the rest of that because I grew up with Seth and it's I'm not saying it. All right. Here we go. Um, my buddy, Gnome Drummy. Let me see. Uh, I have a, a, a it was on the email. Let me see. I'm just going to find it. <laughs> this will be embarrassing for him, I hope. But you know what? He should be proud. Uh, let me see if I can find this email. Um, the Los Angeles County Alliance for Boys and Girls Club. Uh, Gnome is a volunteer. So um, he actually uh, got a nice little write-up from them. And it says, Noam Dromi is a veteran writer, producer, marketing executive, and digital strategist specializing in creative content, media production, and brand development for entertainment companies, corporations, consumer brands, nonprofits. He works with me. Uh, he currently serves as consultant and advisor for a portfolio of media companies and startups at the intersection of technology and storytelling. So get your questions ready. But really what you want to know is uh, uh, he, he's won a, a Primetime Emmy Award, and uh, he co-created the Warner Brothers Alcon Entertainment Dolphin Tale film franchise starring Morgan Freeman, Harry Connick Jr., and Ashley Judd. And you know it grossed over $150 million at the worldwide box office. That's a that's Dolphin Tale. You guys remember Dolphin Tale? I know you do. Um, you can ask Noam about Dolphin Tale if you want because he wrote it. <laughs> uh, but more than that, uh, he's... My friend and producer, I met him at Comic-Con several years ago, and we just started hanging out and throwing out ideas and being like, hey, we should work together. He actually liked my ideas, and we're like, okay, well, maybe we can make them a reality. Here he is, my buddy Noam Dromi. How was that for an intro? Amazing. I'm only <laughs> moderately embarrassed, and I thank, you. I thank you for the kind words. How are you? I'm good, man. Uh, really been spending the last couple of days in the old apartment, assessing everything that I've got and seeing what I can shed and then seeing what I can store for the next phase of life uh, because we're kind of in that stretch where 
whether we want to or not, someone's going to start reopening our, our, our country in different various places. And uh, eventually we got to get back to work in some form. It's going to be a new form, but we got to get back to work. And so I'd like to be prepared for that. I'd like to have my house in order, both literally and mentally and physically and all that. You know what indeed, I mean? Indeed. And, and uh, the internet has uh, blessed us with the Snyder Cut. Uh, so we can, <laughs> we can certainly talk about that. I, I was hoping for the cat's butthole cut, but I guess that might not be forthcoming. Wait, is that a real thing? Like, like I mean, I, I've, I've, I've heard rumors and I'd like to believe that they're true. The CGI artists on cats put buttholes on all the cats. And, and then had to remove them after they stopped. But by the way, I, I went to go see that movie High, and I literally, <laughs> even, even that didn't do it justice. That film was absolutely nuts, and I'm just so glad that it got made um, because it just goes to show you that crazy ideas still have currency in this industry of ours. So. Well, did it, I, I don't, I, I, you know what, like, I don't know how Cats did. I don't know if it was a success of the financially. Box oh no, absolutely not. It's a huge <laughs> failure. But God, God bless anybody who actually thought that was a good idea. Now, you know, I get that the a musical had a lot of love and a lot of goodwill, but by the same token, you just stop and think to yourself: Did, did anyone really stop to think whether or not that needed to be a movie? Twenty-five years after Andrew Lloyd Webber brought it to brought it to uh, the stage, I don't yeah. know. I think that the spectacle of theater does not always translate. And that one seems like, I mean, I remember when I was a kid and cats came out was a big thing, but it just seemed like creepy cat costumes, but it was spectacle. And, and in theater, you get that. I'm kind of wondering about uh, the Hamilton theater uh, recording, like they had they shot the theatrical production of yeah. Hamilton with the original cast so that they can put it out on theaters. And now they're putting it out on Disney plus like uh, July 4th weekend. I'm interested in that, but it's still yeah. But I mean, I feel I feel like that's sort of like the infamous death of a salesman that had uh, Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich in it, uh, you know, many many eons ago. Where there's a purpose for that. Hamilton has become part of kind of you know the lexicon and the fame of like really amazing progressive and creative storytelling on Broadway. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. I honestly, I think a Hamilton movie could be awesome, but Cats, I just don't know. That's like that Spider-Man. Um, Turn in the dark. Yeah. I just I did never anyone, saw it. Oh, uh, I mean, I didn't see it either, but I just heard it was an absolute shit show. So. And I'm sure that like some of the Geekscapists saw it, and like Julie Taymor, like she is a, a bona fide like success with Broadway. Like I think her Titus Andronicus is amazing, both. As a film, I thought that was amazing. And then obviously, like, The Lion King's a big hit. Like, she knows what she's doing, um, film and in theater. But Spider-Man, turn out the dark. Turn up the light. Turn up, turn yourself off of Broadway. I don't know what it was. but Get, get turned up or something. <laughs> from people, like, falling out of the rafters to, like, the weird designs and all that stuff. I just, uh, even as a huge Spider-Man fan. It was not enough for me to be like, oh, maybe I'll watch that Spider-Man on Broadway. Uh, that's got to be good. Um, but let me ask you a question. When was the last time you were itching to go see something on Broadway? Was it Hamilton or? Oh, I never saw Hamilton on Broadway. Okay. Um, but no, when I lived in New York, I couldn't afford it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I think stuff like Book of Mormon, I saw at the Pantages. Like, sure. you know, there are books, there are, there are plays that I like. I don't sure. know when theater is ever coming back. Yeah, true. Um, Certainly won't look the same, but hey, that's a great transition. So, Yeah, well, what is coming back? Because I start hearing these rumors, no, and you start hearing them from people that you're working with that there's an indie movie shooting in July that they're they're helping out on. And, and so I've got a friend who's like, oh, I'm helping out on a, on a movie in July uh, that's shooting here in LA. It's an indie and we're going to figure out how to how to put it together safely. And then I'm hearing that one of the big studios is putting one of their giant uh, blockbuster superhero films back together to shoot, but in Australia or New Zealand where things are a little safer. Um, ultimately, like, SAG's going to shut all that shit down <laughs> because it's July. It's a little soon, sure. don't you think? Well, so let me respond to that in two ways. I think that on the one hand, as you correctly pointed out, between all of the guilds and specifically the AMPTP, they are working on establishing the kinds of guidelines that will determine how productions will work and addressing the variables that are obviously problematic on film sets. And that includes 
how we address um, social distancing, how you deal with things that are sort of vectors for germs, and that can include craft service, that can include scenes with extras and things of that nature. So in some respects, there is going to have to be a re-architecting and a rethinking of some of the things that have been historically commonplace in the entertainment business. Truth of the matter is Tyler Perry is mounting two productions that are going to start in July, and he's um, worked out a way that has gotten the blessing of the various unions. He's gonna fly cast members in on his private plane. They're going to be quarantined on at Tyler Perry Studios in Atlanta that is a decommissioned military base anyway. So there's some creative thinking. Obviously it's adding considerable expenses because the reality of it is that a show that maybe took seven days or 10 days to produce in the past is now for all intents and purposes, going to be double that amount of time. So there are things to consider. Michael Bay's company is actually producing a coronavirus thriller that's going to be shooting in LA in July. And the truth of the matter is the actors will never interact um, with crew members. They've worked out a way to set up filming so that it not only social distancing, but a lot of it is going to be shot remotely. I think what's important and you started to see this first and foremost with the um, one of the final episodes of the CBS series, All Rise. There are ways to innovate. There are ways to be creative. Obviously, that's not sustainable as an overarching business model. But the only thing I'll just uh, um, sort of clarify that you had said a moment ago, I think SAG and other unions are going to be open to this stuff. It just is a gradual process. Jonathan, the biggest issue is going to be bonding and insurance because the truth of the matter is if people start getting sick, no insurance company is going to cover productions. And that, if it happens, if there's a second wave, if other things are not considered, we're in big trouble. I think right now people are just putting their proverbial big toe in the water to see what happens. Well, shit, man. You and I were meeting with actors and trying to cast our films that we could start shooting maybe this summer or uh, late summer. And then the, the, we, we had to put the kibosh on this thing. I'm not going to say kibosh. I'm going to say we had to put the clamps down on this thing and sit tight for a bit um, because of, you know, and I just have like a small indie movie. I'm not trying to make a Michael yeah. Bay movie. I'm not trying to make a Marvel movie. And I'm not trying to make a Tyler Perry all big studio film. Sure. You know, like, what what are some of the things that we got to do for you and I to go back to work and get this so, movie made? So let's let's talk about that in the aggregate in two parts. There's one obviously that's the health related element, which is just the safety of people, minimizing any risk of infection because the COVID virus, has, the coronavirus, COVID nineteen, that hasn't gone away. And I'm the just glad you didn't call it Chinese virus. No, I'm, yeah, I'm just I glad. That, I'm yeah, because there was I a know. phase where I couldn't bring you on Geekscape because every other word out of your mouth was my, 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 my latent racism. And by the way, no, no, it <laughs> is kidding. not. The Chinese virus is not what it is, and 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 poo on anyone who calls it that. Right. Um. But but it. But in all seriousness, though. There's obviously that factor, but the other one is simply an economic one. What you and I, the situation we found ourselves in was that we went from beginning a discussion with actors, beginning discussions around financing to the business literally grinding to a halt, which meant that people were working from home, people were furloughed, people were ultimately losing their jobs. And those are the agencies with whom we were dealing with. Those were some of the production and financing entities with whom we were dealing with. I think three months later, the people are gradually coming back and saying, we've got to get back into creating content, pushing it. What you and I have to navigate, therefore, is twofold. If we are going to make the film that we intend to, in fact, will make at the level we want to, which is an indie production, but still one that will feel big in scope and scale, because we're awesome and we make cool shit. Um, <laughs> we, ha we have to realize that the actors that we want to cast, there's going to be some real concerns. We're, we are, you know, we did begin discussions with people who are names, and we have to be mindful of the fact that we're not going to be able to get away with doing an indie that doesn't have to be bonded, that doesn't have to do all that. Now, look, we're going to do all those things, but what we have to be conscious of is. Are we going to shoot in California or are we going to shoot in another state? How are we mindful of uh, the scenarios where are we going to quarantine as a team and literally everyone is going to live together while this is being made? And that creates an unanticipated 
costs that we're going to have to deal with as mm -hmm. well. Those are the things that we're starting to figure out and that is specifically my responsibility. You're the creative guy and I'm the person who's got to put all that together is we've got to figure out how we get actors comfortable. We've got to figure out how we best surround you with a kind of team who um, you know, is producing quality stuff, but also wants to make sure that they're healthy, wants to make sure that we are dealing with this production as professionals and developing contingency plans. And also we've gotta be creative in figuring out how things that we may have done with scenes that had extras and other things, how we're gonna to have to innovate for remote production, utilization of more CGI, things of that nature. It's gonna happen. I'd like for us to take a leadership position and ultimately be the people leading the charge, not just waiting in fear, sitting on our hands saying, well, I don't know, because that's not who we are and we're making this movie. So we just got to figure out the best way to do it. Well, uh, but the money thing, <laughs> like ultimately sure. we got to convince somebody that we know what we're doing. Uh, and I don't know if we can exactly walk into a place and be like, oh yeah, the crowd, that crowd scene, that, that, that group scene that we have in there, we're going to CGI them in, or they're going to be played by animatronics. Well, okay, so two things. As you know, virtual production and virtual sets, whereas in the past they felt very clunky and you knew that you were looking at things that felt cheaper, that technology has innovated, and there are a handful of companies in L.A. and in New York who are doing things where I would challenge you to know what was real and what was an actor in front of a green screen with virtual elements, scene extensions, green screen, and other elements integrated. Right, that but this can is be Mandalorian. Done. Like we're no, just no, no, but, but buddy, I'm literally talking about things that are smaller scale that shows like the kinds of shows you're seeing on Quibi and in other places. Don't get me wrong. I'm not, I don't presume to say that I have all the answers, but we, you know, we have been fortunate, you and I, in terms of the relationships we've cultivated the kind of content that we're creating. What I'm telling you is today, big scale productions and smaller indie productions can pull, pull from the same types of resources. And the truth of the matter is there are ways to make content that make it feel like extras are in the scene, that make it feel like you're in an environment where you may actually be on a stage. And I challenge people to know the difference. Okay. That is what we're gonna do. Um, Heidi from uh, the other room says that Big Little Lies used a ton of CGI and you cannot tell. And that's kind of. I, I, think, I like, don't think Heidi can be trusted though, so I'm not. Sure <laughs> what I'm well, I, I mean, I, I think that what her point is that Big, uh, you know, Big Little Lies is kind of it's yeah. a drama. It's not a. It's not the Mandalorian. It's not a Marvel sure. movie. Sure. And so it's using CGI to augment interpersonal conversations, interpersonal moments that are smaller than Thanos putting on the Infinity Gauntlet and blasting half the people away. And look, J Jonathan, what's amazing to me is that I the reality of it is most shows that are just straight dramas will use CG elements that we just never know about because they've got to accommodate for production considerations and the timing and pace of producing it, you know, whether it's TV, some independent films, there's a lot more of it than we ultimately think. And what I'm saying to everyone who's watching this and kind of with the theme of our conversation tonight, um, two things have really emerged from the last three months that I think are fundamentally important, which is our industry often gets lazy and falls back on the convenience of the way things are done. What's going to drive the charge moving forward are people who can innovate, people who understand that technology has actually been waiting on the sidelines, whether it's live streaming, which, you know, Six months ago, most people had never heard of Zoom. Now it's the part of our vernacular for all things video conferencing. Mm -hmm. And we are going to continue to see innovations in programming and in storytelling that are utilizing virtual production in a way that works for smaller scale productions and works for the big Hollywood things. We have to start to identify what those opportunities are. So we are leaders, not followers. And... Obviously, I don't want to give away all the trade secrets because I want you and I to benefit from them and prove <laughs> what we can do. But I'm telling you, as awful as what has happened is, and God bless all the people who have lost jobs, who are infected, who are dealing with circumstances in their own lives that they never anticipated. And I hate new normals, so I don't want to use those words, but are adjusting to a new set of circumstances. We cannot allow ourselves to stop creating, to stop innovating. I myself, together with you, 
I'm producing three podcasts. I'm producing three digital series. And, you know, we're still making content. Um, there are uh, uh, UT, University of Texas at Austin, their, um, their digital media program run by an amazing woman by the name of Erin Riley. They're creating original series ideas in Zoom. This is the world we're now in. And frankly, I'm excited by it. My whole career has been driven by the fact that I was never going to be Spielberg. I was never going to be the great American writer. I've had these interesting, aberrant successes. You know, I wrote a film that had some success. I won the first Emmy for VR. I got nominated for an Emmy for a digital uh, series, uh, AMC's um, Walking Dead digital spinoff, Red Machete. Technology and content and creative marketing that sort of intersection of things, that's the world we're in now. And the winners and losers are going to be defined by the people who get in and innovate and don't care about making mistakes. They just want to be creative and they want to push the limits of what's possible. That's what you and I are going to do with our project and with other things that we can look forward to. What I love is that um, you, uh, you're connected with me and that was like the most round, that was like a fucking Bill Pullman in Independence Day speech that you just gave. Um, who else wouldn't want to sign up for uh, working with you on that one? Yeah. Um, I want to get into detail on some of those uh, different projects and why they were unique and technologically and narratively. Uh, and also the, the idea that you uh, are saying, hey, it's okay if we were making mistakes, we just got to go for it because, um, hey, I make a lot of mistakes. Oh, man. <laughs> I'm really glad just, that you gave just, me just, just ask, just ask my wife. What's that? I say, just ask my wife. She will de definitely concede that I make a lot of mistakes. <laughs> but you know what? You, you don't get any credit for not trying. So right. I'd rather try and fail than just w wait until something can be perfect because nothing will ever be perfect. Yeah, You're I mean, a writer. I'm a writer. You know, yeah, we write growing pains regardless. So you, you got to push the envelope. You got to push against the wall. You got to keep trying. And like, I don't think you and I like sitting on our, like, we don't like sitting around at all. This has been testing. Dude, this whole I, I would lose my mind. You know, I've been producing a new interview series where we interview older celebrities about how they're navigating things. It's called Dispatches from Quarantine. And it's, it's you know, we zoom in with people. We found kind of an interesting format. We're getting a little bit of love around that. And I just want to keep figuring things out. You know, uh, I'm, I'm producing in two weeks a 10-hour live stream. Um, just why? because why, <laughs> because why not? You know? We've actually talked, uh, Matt Kelly, uh, who runs the podcast network at Geekscape, um, and they were on last night doing horror movie night. They've kind of taken our, our Tuesday night slot. Um, they, uh, he, he does a bunch of fundraisers and he was thinking about maybe doing like a 24 hour live stream. George, my partner with Geekscape and I just signed up for a year uh, of StreamYard, which is like the most, I think that's the longest you can sign up for any time. So obviously I'm dedicated to doing a live streaming thing, um, even beyond whatever the pandemic brings or the quarantine brings. Like I like doing this stuff. I like bringing in the comments. I like talking to guests, either whether or not they're sitting next to me as they will in the future or over the the, uh, the stream. Like I, I like, I love doing this. I've always dreamt of being uh, interviewing people. Um, and I do want to mention real quick that previous Geekscape guest, just because I thought of it, previous Geekscape guest, Matt Penfield, who was on about two years ago. He's a former MTV VJ. He's a radio disc jockey. He works in like metal and punk and rock. Um, he uh, was hit by a car two uh, years ago and is dealing with his health. Oh my uh, God. Yeah. He, 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 his leg is a, l a little messed up. He's trying to get better. Um, he's lost a ton of weight. Uh, he and I talked last night. He's got a GoFundMe up that uh, I linked on my Facebook, and I'll put in the show notes. But if you guys are watching or listening to this, uh, search out the Matt Pinfield GoFundMe. He's dealing with some medical bills based on the fact that he's been wrestling with his health for a long time because of this car accident. But I don't know if you remember Matt Pinfield from MTV, but he became a homie. And last night he said, we're going to go to the 101 Cafe when this is all over, and I plan on totally doing that um real quick from the comments um we got ricto saying only make cartoons and the cartoons are booming there's a lot of cartoons going oh, on animation is kicking ass right now so it's I the one that. thing that like people can do safely uh the the one of the shows that i produce for you uh for reboot is the steve bodo show and they had nick kroll on last week 
uh, and I would I recorded it myself, and I listened to Nick Kroll talk about how he's still working on Big Mouth nonstop during the pandemic because he's just sitting in his uh, at his at his kitchen table running the writers' room and recording voices, and they're still I mean they're writing right now, but I mean that's what I'm doing right now on our cartoon. Uh, we're putting a sizzle together. It super is a action man. It is a Geekscape property. It is Super Action Man. Um, but we're working on the Super Action Man cartoon. And uh, I don't want to talk too much about it because there's nothing to show. But there's a pretty awesome theme song. And I've got some storyboards <laughs> that I'm giving notes on. And I think it's funny. We'll see what happens. We'll see who picks up uh, our uh, unabashed love letter to uh, American Excess. <laughs> I sent uh, one small storyboard to my friend Jim yesterday and he said I like that you're keeping the super action ridiculousness and I'm like yeah well you have to we have to um, what do we got we got um, some uh, Rick though again says so pretty much what you're saying is that someday I'll go to the theater and watch an episode of Geekscape well that is exactly what we're saying Maybe. I mean, you're watching an episode of Geekscape here. Uh, you know, just throw me up on your big screen that I know you got in the living room. I actually have friends who've sent me photos of them sitting in their living room and having Geekscape up on the big plasma. That being said, yeah, I don't know. If it's a theater, I'd like to maybe make something a little more narrative or maybe interactive. I don't think that the theater experience is going to be what we think it is in 2020. I don't think it's going to be that in 2025. I think that uh, like VR now, so many people have these Oculus Quests I was talking to my buddy Mike Kaliski last night about um, his Oculus Quest, and he was like, dude, it's $400. There's so much content that's free that you don't even have to subscribe to, and it's amazing. He's loving it. Um, and I don't, I don't think it'll be long before uh, our 3D glasses, our VR glasses, and then once you make that leap to, I don't know, digital contact lenses, something a little bit less uh, you know, um, heavy, like a VR goggle. I mean, we're already putting 3D glasses on our faces. Um, you got yourself an individualized, like video game-like experience while you're sitting in a theater with people watching something on screen. And who knows? It'd be cool for Geekscape to have something like that. The old uh, Star Trek: The Next Generation holodeck, where you really <laughs> feel like you're in an actual environment. Who knows? Right? It's all coming. <laughs> Big Yang says plasma. <laughs> what is this? 2008. You know what I mean. I know you guys don't have plasma TVs anymore, but you know what I'm saying. You got the nice Cath screen on your cathode ray tubes. The old, the old. Uh, when you take the eight track and you plug it into the TV and turn on the ColecoVision and it shows up with the Indian Chief, and then it's a channel. I don't know exactly. What I'm saying. <laughs> um, so. What are you seeing this year? Like we're talking about like in the future, how maybe remotely you're going to be putting a film together. I think I heard Spielberg did that for Jurassic Park to the Lost World um, because he was, you know, that's that's the rumor I heard was that he was kind of remote on directing Jurassic Park 2. It's a rumor. And I know some directors do do that. Even if they're just hanging out in Video Village, they'll do like the kind of remote directing thing, direct filmmaking thing. I saw today... Um, actually, I was talking to my friend George, my partner in Geekscape. He produces for PBS the Actors on Actor, Actors series where actors interview actors. And they just did like Reese Witherspoon and somebody, and it was all over some form of Zoom. It wasn't Zoom, but the different departments were all in on the Zoom call. It wasn't what was recorded, but the departments could all be part of a live chat. There were three different chats going on for three different departments. And um, and uh, and they were kind of directing the interview, t you know, the interview conversation show with all that going on with the different department heads all kind of giving input for, for their various areas of expertise, like the cinematographers and this and that. And, and it went swimmingly. Like, are you talking about something like that where we have department heads all kind of working remotely? Yeah. I mean, look, some of the positions obviously just need to re-architect and figure out how things are going to work. What is your construction foreman going to have to deal with? What are your cinematography department, your gaffer, your grips? I mean, I think all those things are manageable. One of the questions, uh, you know, my wife is a location manager, and I think one of the things we're going to have to figure out is, well, what does working on location look like? You know, typically 
there, there's one configuration of shooting on a stage, but if you're going into a neighborhood, if you're going somewhere else, people are going to be incredibly reluctant. You know, film crews leave a, a large and often messy footprint. So I think we've really just got to figure out what exactly are we talking about in terms of those types of opportunities and, and reconfiguring things. Some positions it's going to be clearer, others less so. Uh, location scouts are not going to look the same anymore. Technical scouts are not going to look the same anymore. We have got to be creative. And also, my biggest concern, candidly, is that there's not a uniformity to rules. Lionsgate may do one thing. Paramount may do another thing. Universal may do another thing. We all have to get on the same page because otherwise it's just going to be a cluster F of, of mixed messaging and not knowing what you're dealing with. I think that the smaller players are actually more nimble right now. The Tyler Perry's, you know, the Emmett Furla's, um, the Millenniums who are shooting in Bulgaria. Those who can shoot out of the U.S. I think are going to be in an interesting position to really be, have a first mover advantage in some respects. And I think we're just trying to figure out how it all works right now. So we'll see. So are, are you saying I should write a Van Damme movie that Millennium can make in Bulgaria? Yes. <laughs> that is exactly what I'm saying, by the way. I should write like a Steven Seagal movie uh, where we'll, we'll film it like in Moscow. Yeah, like an abandoned paint factory, and we'll just shoot it somewhere there. And now you're all, talking about all those movies always end up in some abandoned paint factory or abandoned warehouse where there's just like people shooting and like bricks exploding out of walls and stuff like that. And it's you know, or an abandoned train yard. Those are popular. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Millennium Films, or you're always in a forest. <laughs> it's like, oh, there we go. Um, I think but you're there, right. There's a marketplace for that kind of content, and I think that. We have to be mindful of the fact that the huge scale Hollywood business is going to fundamentally change. And as I said, indies are just well positioned to have first mover advantage because they don't need to deal with all of the bureaucracy and red tape. Obviously, the broader issues are insurance, are bonding, and are generally being nimble enough so that if something happens, it doesn't shut you down. Mm -hmm. uh, James Cotton just threw up this challenge on Facebook. He said, Jonathan, show us your storyboards. Um, no. <laughs> First off, they were sent to me, and I gave notes, and the storyboards will get better. I don't, you know, the storyboards are actually really cool. It's just some of the jokes and visual gags, like, I gave notes on that stuff. It'll get better. I want to show you guys the stuff that's, like, great or good. I clearly The, the, the production storyboards is what you yeah, want. Yeah, I want, like, yeah, the production storyboards, maybe some of the character designs, maybe once we get the logos kind of a little closer to the final logo, I'll start showing you guys that stuff. Um, but we'll see. Um, one thing I wanted to say was I took, uh, what's distribution and exhibition going to look like, too? Because uh, we went to the drive-in this past Saturday, and I, I actually took a recommendation from the Horror Movie Night uh, Facebook group uh, to go see The Vast of Night, which was really cool. They shot it outside of Austin, but it takes place in the 50s in a small town in New Mexico. And what a cool movie to watch at a drive-in because it takes place in the 50s, total drive-in culture, but it's also about uh, uh, a phone like uh, connect, a phone operator who's connecting phones and stuff like that in the 50s and a radio DJ in this small town. And they start picking up these almost extraterrestrial like sounds over the uh, the airwaves and the way that drive-ins work is you pull into the drive-in and they set out they send out a, a small shortwave FM signal that you put into your car and you have to listen to the movie through your FM radio the whole movie vast of night is about listening to signals listening to sound and it's a pretty small movie there's not like huge set pieces in it and it it relies a lot on dialogue and listening and sound and a lot of the scenes are single shot moves and really long takes. The performances are awesome. The writing's awesome. If you guys get a chance to see Vast of Night, watch it. If you guys get a chance to see Vast of Night on a big screen at a drive-in, you gotta fucking do it. It's perfect. Uh, it's just the perfect movie for that thing. And it was a really great movie. So thanks to that uh, Horror Movie Night group for recommending it because it was a little bit War of the Worlds, Orson Welles style and a little bit like... Um, it was just a cool movie, and and I think you guys would enjoy it. It's almost like it was almost like a a filmed radio drama. It was so reliant on sound. Uh, I can't recommend it enough. It's re it's really hard to pull off that kind of writing for an hour and a half, but they did a great job of it. Um, Heidi's got a question. She was my date to the drive-in. We had a lot of fun. Um, 
do we know if SAG is working on a specific requirement for safety standards so actors can go back to work? Would would SAG actually show their cards this early? Do they even know what those safety requirements would be? What do we got to do to go back to work with SAG? So, so it's a great question. Um, the Writers Guild, less so of a factor, but um, IATSE, um, Teamsters, SAG, and the DGA are all in, and the PGA for that matter, are all in discussions. A set of kind of universal guidelines will be released in consultation and conjunction with them and the AMPTP. So Gabrielle Carteris, who's the president of SAG, used to play Andrea on the original 90210. Um, they are in the mix on all that. And the answer is yes, there are going to be guidelines. And the expectation is that those will be released probably during the month of June so that we have a clear understanding of what getting back to work looks like. There have been a series of webinars and discussions that are being held with all the unions. I've been involved on the PGA side with some of the discussions about how all of those things work. So it is forthcoming. Um, obviously, just like the reality with you know productions pre-COVID um, pandemic, people are going to mess up. People are going to try and bend the rules a little bit but I'm hopeful that the guidelines will be clear and unambiguous and there'll be a great roadmap for people to be able to move forward. Um, we've got a question from Big Yanks. He's in Long Island. He says, what impact are movies that are done and just keep pushing dates or going straight to VOD having to st on studios right now? Uh, did he ask that right? You know what I mean? Like when Disney slides uh, Black Widow to November or uh, when you've got movies like that are just going to go to Disney Plus, or they're just sure. going to go to uh, this new HBO uh, Max. HBO Max. It's going to open it in like a. It's going to. I think HBO Max starts this week. Uh, yeah. What's the impact going to be long term? Is this a, a new thing for the studios that are? It's going to sure. stay. Well, so I, I want to answer that in a couple different ways. Uh, you know, one of the battles, and this even came up recently with the Universal release for Trolls Worldwide, and and their success in that relatively because they grossed uh, through VOD and streaming over a hundred million dollars. And then AMC and Regal kind of threw down the gauntlet and said, you know, this is not the nature of the agreement between um, studios and exhibitors. And we are not going to show any universal movies going forward. Now, ultimately that's a little bit of posturing and jockeying all that will get resolved. Look, the, the economics of the studio business are such that they rely on theatrical distribution. If that changes fundamentally, we need to start figuring out what that looks like when there is more streaming. Is there going to be day and date where you can go to a social distance theater that has 50% capacity and space between each seat at a certain price point, or you can watch it at home at another price point? Those are big discussions that no one knows the answer to. The reality of it is, Right now, Black Widow, Mulan, the next James Bond movie, uh, Fast and the Furious, those will those cannot break even just releasing to streaming. But the new Tom Hanks movie is premiering on Apple. You've got content that's going to premiere on uh, on uh, uh, HBO Max, Disney Plus, all of these other things. Here's the simple truth. Streaming is going to get a major shot in the arm. The economics of content delivered direct to the consumer are going to change, but they're not replacing the theatrical business. We have to get back to a place where people are going to see movies in theaters. Until we do, it's going to hurt the studios, which in turn is going to hurt the below the line people. A ton of people are not going back to jobs at Disney, Warner Brothers, Universal, Paramount, Sony. That's a problem. We'll see what happens. Are you tapping on something? Or do, you have, do you have like a gavel or something I hear? Like a little tap, tap going, don't you lie to me. I hear okay. you. I hear you. you have a marker in your hand? You're just like tap, tap, tap. That's... Oh, my God. <laughs> I was hearing something. I know. That's weird. I don't know. Not it's hearing just... that on my end. Sorry. Um, no, no, you're good. Um, I had a question about the fact that the Paramount decree is now gone. Is that right? That the, the, the Paramount decree has been kind of expired or gone or hasn't been renewed? This whole idea that when you're talking about the streamers, um, Apple can start buying theaters. Disney can start buying theaters. Uh, Netflix can start buying theaters. These producers sure. now can become exhibitors. And uh -huh. when you go to the Apple store 
and nobody's going to malls anymore. You're at the Disney store. Nobody's going to malls anymore. And they're definitely not going to your theme parks. You got a place now when when you can start buying a theater because the Paramount decree is gone, and you don't in produce you can produce content and exhibit content. This is a law that's been gone since you, you weren't allowed to do that since the 30s or 40s. Well, so let's talk about that real quick. So a little bit of film history. For- walk your ass right out to a Disney store and buy products from the movies. So let's talk about that in two fronts. For film history, for those people who don't know, you know, part of the Paramount decree and the broader idea of antitrust was that during the golden age of Hollywood, um, distributors, meaning the studios, owned exhibitors, and they could affect preferential treatment of their product at theaters, and that was considered anti-competitive, and ultimately the, the federal government got involved and changed the rules of that and required that studios had to spin off and then ultimately sell the theaters that they owned. Right. Um, Every Bogart movie, you had to take my shitty Tarzan movies too. So the truth of the matter is, yes, it has gone away, but the reason it's not the same as it was is because there's a much broader field of buyers and theaters so that it's it it doesn't fundamentally take away competitiveness because we're running into a situation where Netflix is not buying a hundred multiplexes. They're buying individual theaters like the Egyptian, like other places where they can show certain premieres and certain things. But yes, the reality of it is, is that the downstream economics of being able to have a streamer own a theater and be able to have someone walk out of a theater and buy products related to the studio there, um, all of those rules are starting to change because of the way in which the business has consolidated over time. Here's the truth of the matter. It is in some respects anti-competitive because the bigger players, they yield more control, but they've been doing that for a long time anyway. So yes, it's changing, but the truth of the matter is, is that there are still a lot of places where creators can sell product and have product exhibited. And 70 years ago, there was only five. But if you, let's say, like AMC or their smaller competitors, AMC is the largest in the world, but if something like a Cinemark or a Regal suddenly starts getting really dented by the fact that they're not, that their 2020 is going to suck. They're not playing movies right now. And suddenly Regal looks up and says, hey, we got to sell. And Disney's like, hey, great, we're allowed to buy you guys now. And suddenly all the Regals in the country or in the world suddenly become Disney theaters then the producer that's in charge of 40% of the content in Hollywood is now able to put it straight out sure. to what used to be the regal real estate. Sure. So to be, clear, to be clear, that is unlikely to happen in the short term because the reality of it is the economics of exhibition, you're in the real estate business, A, you're in the concessions business, And I don't know that if you look at Disney that obviously owns some of the biggest intellectual property brands in the world, including Fox, including Lucasfilm, including Pixar, and including Marvel, right now coming out of COVID, yes, they're going to be winners and losers. Yes, some exhibitors may fall by the wayside. You're more likely to see Netflix, Apple, Facebook, Google buy theaters than you are to see Disney or one of the studios buy them. Now that may change. Right now, economically, it does not make sense for a studio to buy an exhibitor. Should Geekscape buy um, yes. like a local black box theater and start showing? <laughs> oh, 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 I'm sorry. I thought you said should re- should Geekscape buy the local red box kiosk? <laughs> That's and the answer to that is yes. I Absolutely. think there's one last blockbuster, but I don't think they're selling. Uh, if there's any, monitor- I think it's like Montana or something, right? It's in Oregon. If Oregon. I can. If I can hack into the whatever Redbox kiosks are out there, I can. Yeah, we'll see if we can get some Geekscape content on there for you guys. I and, love it. I mean, I got to make all those DVDs first, and then put them in the Redbox. I think you know, now we're talking. But now Jonathan, what I'm even saying is, let's make up a bunch of fake DVDs, and then as soon as like Barnes and Noble opens back up, let's just drop <laughs> them there. You know, everywhere at the airport, wherever we can put your content, let's just put it there. Well, um, one thing that I was going to ask you is, uh, like, your track history of seeing these kind of changes from entertainment and, and te- the merging of to entertainment and technology. Um, 
Like, for instance, The Walking Dead wanted a digital spinoff series of micro-episodes. How is that different than just webisodes? What part of it was any different in 2018 sure. when you guys released that than something that was happening in 2008 when I was making webisodes for Fox and, and Hulu and, and Apple started showing webisodes or YouTube started? Like, how was what you guys did with The Walking Dead different in 2018 than that technologically? So it's a great question. And technologically, really, it wasn't different. At the end of the day, it's that Marshall, uh, me bastardizing that Marshall McLuhan uh, quote, which is, it's, it's not the, uh, well, now I don't even remember it, so forgive me. Um, but what's the gist of it? Um, well, but just the idea that it's, um, you, you know, look, even if the platforms change, ultimately the content remains the same. They are webisodes, but let me explain the differentiation. I think at a certain point, what, you know, Netflix since, 2013 when house of cards first came out the the notion that you could go direct to consumer and cut out the middleman has really caught hold in a big way and there have been iterations of that the short form content business had the the um the different uh you know platforms that they tried to innovate on over the years that didn't go anywhere and now quibi is sort of trying to be in that space what we did was very simple amc is a basic cable channel, but they realized that they have enough of a unique brand proposition and a loyal audience that they partnered with Comcast Xfinity and they launched AMC Premiere. So they were creating sort of a walled garden of content and obviously releasing and being able to provide their consumer a, a fresh episode of The Walking Dead 48 hours before it was on the linear station was not enough to maintain the ability to upsell a consumer. So they said, we've got to create new content. We've got to create brand extensions of the content. And Walking Dead Red Machete was just an opportunity to be able to do that. And I think what was really exciting about that is they want to be able to fulfill audience appetites even when there's no fresh material one of the inherent challenges with tv is that you know at least with cable they're showing all the episodes week after week and then maybe doing a, a fall mid-season finale and then coming back or whatever whereas you could watch 22 episodes of a network show you watch three then it's off two weeks you watch four then it's off five weeks so there was some continuity but in a culture of fandom you do not want to make your audience miss you out of sight, out of mind. So we created content. They were able to use it as part of their product offering to upsell their direct-to-consumer product. And hey, we got nominated for an Emmy for it, so I guess it worked. Yeah, uh, I mean, I liked it. I, I thought it was cool. And it, and it did tie into what was happening in the show. Yeah, and we had some of the folks actually come back um, from the original series and make cameos in our show, which was, uh, you know, a great boon and was well received. So, yeah. So what you're saying is that even though we're talking about this new technology, what we're really talking about is different, different ways to distribute some small ways to uh, change production or maybe big ways to change production that we're going to start seeing really soon when we start getting back up and going. Um, but that ultimately like storytelling is storytelling. There's I, 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 I remember the quote more ways what's the quote you're talking about it's not the medium it's the message it's not the medium it's the message hold on i'm a little slow i think i know what that means i get it <laughs> i'm being facetious but um yeah uh i mean ultimately like you and i have talked about different ways to stretch and pull what we're trying to make um i'm you know <laughs> you texted me the other day when we were talking about like hey i think disney's trying to shoot in australia or new zealand when we started talking about that you were like Hey, uh, can we shoot your film in another uh, country? And I don't even know if I responded to the text because the movie is so set against the backdrop of American iconography. In the you know that's just where the movie is set, and that it play it's a character uh, that I was like, uh oh. But um, I think that stretch and pull is kind of what we're talking about. Like we have to find the nooks and it, it, that's a big move. Actually, moving a country that is part of the visual like tapestry of the film is a big move. But I think what we're, you and I are talking about are these small pivots and moves that over the course of an entire production, over the course of an entire TV production are actually big changes in the way you're working. You know, 
it's just small things like, you know, uh, taking a little bit more time to do things like cleaning checks. I think, like you were saying, if we're going into a location, being able to control the location, things like that, it, that stuff might get a little pricier too. Well, by the way, absolutely. And my concern is obviously as prices go up, they're going to start, you know, the human capital is what's going to suffer because they're going to, they're going to reduce a footprint of people and those who remain are going to be required to do more work and not necessarily receive more compensation. You know well, that. Let them do that though. Oh, I mean, is IATSE going to like do that? Cause you have to, they're not, they're not going to have a choice because the difference is their people are not going to be employed. So look, what I want to stress is the reality is the reality is, is that the film industry remains one of the last industries that, wherein organized labor unions and guilds still have a disproportionate impact on contracts and economics. And obviously that's what labor strikes and things like that of that nature are about. But I, I want to, I really believe fundamentally that people are, you know, the human capital, the labor, they're going to be negatively impacted by this. And what we need to be able to figure out and do is determine the best way to empower creatives to take some control back into their own hands. I do quickly want to talk about your point about taking your movie internationally. You know, from movies of the 50s where people would be sitting in a car on a soundstage and, you know, they'd have a fake background, poor man's process, they call it. You never know. I mean, uh, look, we... uh, um, your project, our project, the lifeblood of it, the, the American Southwest is sort of a character in the narrative in a way. Really, the whole country is kind of a character in the narrative. But you know what? They've made Toronto look like New York. They've made South Africa look like middle America. And the truth of the matter is, if it's the choice between not making it at all or being creative and finding a way to do it differently than we had originally imagined, there's no choice. There's no question in my mind. If there's one message I want people to take away from the conversation that you and I are having today is that when you have all the money in the world, you get fat, you get lazy. When you have to be creative because you only have a finite amount of resources to do it, that's when the greatest creativity can come. By the way, look at the movies of the 60s and 70s, that new wave of filmmakers, you know, that whether it was Hal Ashby or what Scorsese and Coppola were doing, all of those people were innovators. Post-COVID, that is the world we're going to be in. And I want to be a leader in that, not somebody who says, what if? Yeah, one of the things I've been thinking about, my favorite movie of all time, The Bicycle Thieves, like how Victoria De Sica and all these you know, Italian neorealist filmmakers were just making movies any way they could. You know, it's almost like a Cassavetti style. I've been watching a lot of stuff. It's really sad that Lynn Shelton just died because – uh, her really, films, really sad. Her films are kind of made in the same. I'm, I don't want to say mumblecore because I feel like the Duplass brothers own that one, but uh, kind of made in this sort of improvisational style or just kind of with maybe non actors. Uh, and I was thinking, uh, what did I just watch? I just watched um, Francis Ha again, and that one is kind of in the same style uh, where you got some actors, feels like some non actors, a little level of improvisation. And taking some of that into, like, okay, Jonathan, like, when we get up and running, like, how are we going to put this together in a way that feels fluid and organic, but also uh, is in this new kind of arena of post-COVID, and maybe not even post-COVID, because Victoria Nasica had to be like, hey, there's still Nazis in northern Italy, but I got to make my movie. That, that was like shooting when we don't have a vaccine. It's like, hey, the enemy, the unseen enemy, the invisible enemy, it's still out there, but we still got to tell our story. Uh, we got to get back to work. And I mean, that's kind of the, that's kind of where I am on it, Gnome, is like kind of seeing how that is. So I think you're right. But I do also think there's a, 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 a place where Rumble in the Bronx, you can totally tell that they were shooting in Vancouver because there are no snow-capped mountains. Well, look, <laughs> look, Jonathan, what I want to stress is, the plan remains to shoot in this country. But the one thing I'm not going to allow to happen is for us to have to wait 18 months or however long until a vaccine comes out and just act like we're at the mercy of circumstances where as creatives, and this is not only true for this project, but any project, we can figure it out. That's what we have to do. The podcast listeners cannot tell, but I'm applauding because that, so kind of, that is slow clap. That is a kind of ass kicking 
problem solving I need from uh, my producer, mainly because I'm lazy and dumb. Uh, <laughs> I'm messing with myself. But uh, no, dude, there's so much more we could talk about. Hey, Geekscape, if you like to have a gnome on the show, like he's so informational, but like he's just, he's like one of my closest friends. We literally talk every day. And I got to like say a big shout out to this guy because one thing I'm definitely not doing this uh, pandemic is I'm not teaching. Uh, I make some money uh, by teaching. I teach production. I go to a film school and I teach production, but you can't do that because of the pandemic and the, the, the lockdown. So I was totally unemployed. Uh, my, my work for Universal was out the window because I work for their features department and that they're not making any movies, definitely not testing any movies. So that work, my money had dried up. And then Gnome called and said, hey, this podcast thing you've been doing since 2005, let's get you in here producing podcasts. And the dude totally saved my butt. I love him so much. The guy's a brother. I loved having him on the show. And I love talking to him about this stuff because I get my anxiety and I'm like, oh, we're never going to work again. Am I going to do it? Is my movie ever going to get made? I totally have movie nightmares. I told Gnome, I was like, I have nightmares that I'm shooting my movie. I totally get that stuff. Um, and Gnome's the guy who's like, oh, no, hey, this is how we're going to solve that problem. This is how it's going to get done. And you're just the voice of reason. And you've done me such a solid during this, like what would otherwise have been a really fucked up, stressful time for me. Well, look, let me throw that back out at you. The thing, as long as I've known you, you know, we met at Comic-Con, which is kind of this crazy environment. And and you've always been someone in the industry of people who can sort of be a little bit fake, who's incredibly earnest, who, you know, has been very raw in terms of your journey, both the good and the bad of it all. And, and you know, that's reflected in your work as a storyteller. That's reflected in your work, work ethic and the stuff that we're doing together right now. So I wouldn't be calling you if... I didn't know that we were not kindred spirits in terms of what we want to do and how we believe stories can really impact the world and, you know, inform and entertain and enlighten. Because frankly, I don't know how to do anything else. I'm really not that talented or smart, but I do believe <laughs> that telling good stories is something I at least have some measure of skill in. So I'm excited to do it. I'm really excited to do it with you. Make sure in the show notes that you link to the three podcasts that we're working on together. Okay. And yep. let's uh, and let's do this again soon, man. It was a real pleasure, and uh, you know, I thank you for having me on, and I hope to be on again in the future. Thanks, man. Uh, well, let's do some podcasts from location when we're filming, uh, no matter what country we're in. I love it. Um, and just on that final note, Heidi came in with, "Gnome is the best." Gnome's all right. But thank you, move. Heidi. I love you, man. Love you uh, too, man. Thanks for coming on Geekscape. Uh, Gnome Drummy, he's my guy. He's my producer, um, and you know I just love uh, hanging out with the guy. Um, Kate Eglin came in a little late. She said something I'm think I've been thinking about. Are we going to see way more animation in the coming years? That we addressed that earlier in the show. And saying that, I guess I let the cat out of the bag. I am developing a Sam cartoon, uh, but I'm not going to tell you with who quite yet. And I'm definitely not going to show you guys storyboards and stuff yet. Uh, but um, the Suburban Legends did do my theme song, and I love them so much. They've been on the show before. They are my guys, and their theme song kicks ass. Um, and I did not get to this point without my good friend Alex, who's a former geek. He's a geekscape, a sloppy bunny online. Uh, he helped me out with some animations. Maybe you've seen them on my Instagram and stuff like that. But uh, that has helped. And we'll see if we can lock this down so we can have a Sam cartoon. I don't know. Anything can happen. It could fall apart tomorrow. But... You know that I'm working, still going. And one word on the Rumble from the Bronx shot in Vancouver thing is I got corrected. Big Yank says there's definitely is, there definitely are mountains of snow in the Bronx, but snow has parentheses. I think he's talking about cocaine. Big Yanks, you're there in New York right now. I might have to call you into the show as my cocaine correspondent to New York and let me know how things are going. Um, but yeah, that's basically it. I hope you guys are doing well. I hope you guys are staying safe. I mean, what I said in the show, if you guys find this time to be overwhelming, just understand that what you're going through right now is a snapshot. It is not reality. It's how you're feeling right now because there's all these micro stressors and all this crazy shit going on in this world during a pandemic, during a quarantine. You gotta be like, did I remember my gloves? Did I remember my spray? Did I remember my mask? When is this going to end? How much longer am I going to have to do all these rules? When am I able to go back to work? All that stuff. 
this stuff adds stress. And then one day you look up and you're totally overwhelmed and you're like, holy shit, is this ever going to end? Yeah, it's going to end. We got to keep communicating. We got to keep connecting. We got to keep telling our stories. We got to keep sharing like this. That's why we started live streaming on Geekscape. That's why I haven't stopped doing the podcast since 2006. This thing has been going. Uh, and uh, I love doing it. I love communicating with you guys. That's why I started it. Uh, and that's kind of uh, all I got to say on it. This is still going to go. Uh, I'm going to be here for you guys maybe as early as tomorrow, but definitely next week. I've got some cool guests coming up. I'm really excited about that. Sometimes we get a lot of guests at once. Sometimes there's no guests. For, like for, Maybe I can just give you one a week. But uh, I will get a schedule soon. I promise. As soon as there's more normalcy to my life, there will be normalcy in the Geekscape schedule. And then you guys can turn me on whenever you want, or you can watch me when it hits the YouTube, or it hits the Periscope, or the Twitch, or the Facebook. <coughs> it's live, so I can't cut that cut out, that, that cough out. <coughs> oh, no, is this? It's not COVID, I promise. Um, but that's all we got. Uh, Rick, though, one last suggestion. He says, interview Francois. No, I don't think that's going to happen. He's a... He scares me. Francois is like, he's a he's a predator. Uh, I love you guys. This is Geekscape. Listen to the uh, podcast listeners. I love you guys. You guys watching, I love you guys. Um, it's about all I really got to say about that. Geekscape forever. Uh, love you guys. Stay safe. If you need anything, hit us up. We'll be here no matter what. Peace. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 